Hello, my name is Beth Fisher Yoshida. I am the Academic Director of the Master of Science in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution at Columbia University. In addition, I'm also co-chair of AC4, which is the Advanced Consortium on Conflict, Cooperation, and Complexity at Columbia University. And uh, today, this is a program sponsored by AC4 and WKCR. And it's uh, stories from the leading edge, focusing on peace, conflict, nonviolence, and sustainability. And we interview guests every month and uh, something on the area of peace, conflict, and nonviolence, and usually about theory, research, or practice. And today we are fortunate enough to have with us Professor Robert Jervis, who is the Adelaide E. Stevenson Professor of International Politics at Columbia University. He has a very long CV. I'll touch on some of the highlights. He is co-editor of Security Studies series published by Cornell University Press. He serves on the board of nine scholarly journals, and he has also been a fellow in several national academies, as well as when he has time, I guess he teaches also many classes, anything from undergraduate introductory classes to advanced classes here at the university. So I'm just going to ask a couple of questions and have a conversation with Professor Jervis. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great. So as a start, how about doing some little context setting, a little bit historical orientation? How did you even become interested in working in the field of international politics? Yeah, well, it really came from my childhood. I was born in 1940, so my first memories are of the last couple of years of World War II, so that was good introduction to international conflict, but even more the first years of the Cold War and uh, all sorts of incidents were happening, and I was six or seven years old, and American planes, I remember, being shot down over the Adriatic by, you know, by probably Yugoslav uh, fighter pilots who were part of that point, the Soviet bloc, and I remember pestering my parents, you know, why don't we do more about this? Isn't this terrible? How could they say we were spying when, of course, the U.S. would never do anything like that? <laughs> And uh, so I think I got a little more sophisticated later. But the basic question of, well, you know, why do these things happen? Why do countries get in these conflicts? And then what should you do about it? Is it best to retaliate, uh, to build up your arms? Or are there alternative ways of dealing with this? And what are the dangers of both? And then uh, really, again, throughout my uh, teenage years and in the 20s and 30s, again, this corresponded with the Cold War, which was first had a personal element. If there were a war, I, like everyone else, would be dead. So we took it seriously. And I found it uh, intellectually fascinating and still do. I still teach, I teach a course uh, every Tuesday for un advanced undergraduates on the, on the Cold War. And we go over the same issues I puzzled at uh, over uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Well, that's very interesting. And I'm curious then, uh, because people do refer to the Cold War as a certain period of time, and uh, many people have said it's not the same now. So I guess things have changed. Yes. It certainly isn't the same now, but uh, many of the issues bring up some of the same general questions, and two that I've been puzzling about and writing a little and talking to former students and friends in Washington about her, Ukraine and Iran, where we're both in have serious negotiations. 
And some people say, oh, the conflict with Russia or Ukraine could lead to a new Cold War. I think that's a very great exaggeration. No one really worries about a nuclear war or a conflict so intense it becomes the center of American foreign policy and American life. But we have the basic question of our relations between U.S. and Russia going to be not deeply suspicious but deeply hostile for the indefinite future, or are there not quite solutions but at least things that can be done in Ukraine that minimally satisfy the U.S. and Russia and, of course, Ukraine? And actually my feeling is the U.S. diplomacy has been quite weak and we have not explored solutions that or arrangements that would meet this uh, criteria. And the other, of course, big issue, which I've been interested in years and is now, of course, on the front burner, is can we make a nuclear deal with Iran? And same sort of question is if we agree we want, and as mo most Americans want, Iran as far from nuclear weapons as possible, got to ask on the one hand, oh, what's possible to get? You know, in international politics, you run into very powerful, committed actors who want things quite different from you. Compromise is a fact of life. And uh, what arrangements are ex minimally acceptable? They may not be great, but are they acceptable? And how do you get there? What combination of making concessions to the other side, seeking ingenious arrangements, doing that on the one hand, and on the other hand, making threats, in this case obviously, to bomb various facilities, and uh, pressure in the form of economic sanctions. And I mean, wh how do you best combine those to uh, reach their goals? And the fundamental problem there, and in Ukraine, as it was in the Cold War, is that it, a lot depends on the adversary you're dealing with. If the ad, to oversimplify, if the adversary is driven by fear of you, ratcheting up the pressure is likely to make things worse mm -hmm. because it will just increase his need for more weapons. In the Iranian case, they convince them that, oh my God, if we don't have nuclear weapons, we'll be overthrown. That is the obvious lesson from Libya and Iraq. On the other hand, uh, if there, it isn't so much insecurity, but more desire for making gains at our expense, aggression or greed, if you will, uh, then concessions showing that you're not a threat don't help. They make things worse. And indeed, you do have to use forms of sanctions and threat, if not force itself. So you have to make a fundamental assessment of your own interests and the other side's interests and what drives the other side. And the maddening thing about it is um, with the best intentions and goodwill in the world, you can easily get it wrong. And if you do, the policy you follow can make things worse, not better. So it's, uh, and yet policymakers don't have the luxury of we as scholars doing saying, well, this is very interesting. Could be one, could be the other. I'll wait and see how it plays out. In fact, years later, take the Cold War, we still argue about Soviet intentions and motives and about American ones. Uh, so even later, you can't be sure. But anyway, the decision makers can't, mate, can't wait. Mm -hmm. They have to decide in the face of a great deal 
of uncertainty and complexity. That's hard. Yeah, so I would hope that while academics may have the time to ponder different alternatives, that uh, policymakers who don't have that time call on academics to inform them so they can get up to speed more quickly than if they did it on their own. Well, usually the people, when the people at the top call in outsiders, it's to reinforce what they believe. <laughs> I mean, that is almost always the case. But uh, academic research and ideas do uh, have an effect because the people at the second and third levels generally have advanced training and have a little more time and intellectual openness. So a lot of my students have are in this administration and uh, they've been in the Bush administration. It isn't as though they're all Democrats. And they know all the same academic work that I do and they talk to me and, you know, a large number of other people on the outside. And, you know, they then think about it and those ideas, you know, uh, aren't necessarily accepted, but they do find their ways into fairly high levels. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. But I guess it is true that we always like to hear things that reinforce our own beliefs, and to change that is a challenge. Yes, and partly, uh, I mean, it, it is a bad habit, but right, we all have it, and part of it, I think, for decision makers is the psychological pressures they feel. You know, if they're wrong, people die. That is not easy to live with, even for people, say, like Bush, who wanted to project the aura of I'm the decider, or Harry Truman, and very different politically, but also he wanted to be dis he acted as though he were decisive. He did that because actually he knew, left to his own druthers, he'd be indecisive. That you know, the pressures on these people are enormous, and I think in order to act effectively, you need a degree of self-confidence, and you need often to be bolstered. And it may even be better to do that even when you're wrong than to end up hopelessly vacillating or postponing. So while I, I do wish decision makers would call in a more diverse set of people to listen to, you know, they might crack up even sooner than they do. And a lot of decision makers by the end of their terms in office, they are not in good physical or mental shape. They say it's a, it really is very difficult. Well, it's a 24-7 job for the whole time. Yeah. You never really have time off. Yes. Even if you look like you might be on vacation. That's right. You never, and you used to, but now in the last, oh, 10 years or so, modern, secure communications, mm -hmm. the real downside to it. Yes, for sure. Wow. So in addition to paying attention, not that these are light matters, but paying attention to the whole Iranian situation, the negotiations, the nuclear situation there, what's going on with Russia and the Ukraine, how, what else are you working on now? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm just finishing the, the galleys for a review essay for the Journal of Foreign Affairs, which reads academics but non-academics as well, on the... Uh, Senate and CIA reports on the torture of detainees after 9-11. You know, that report came out in December. It got a great deal of press, but the press coverage was, was really very superficial. And uh, the reason for that is not that the reporters 
didn't mean to do their job, but the Senate Democrats, who at that point controlled the majority, were very clever. They, they had their report, it was 500 pages, and it was declassified, but it wasn't ready, it wasn't released. The release date was coming several days later. But they gave it to reporters perfectly legally and said, look, this is going to be released next Tuesday, but it's 500 pages, so you can read it ahead of time. You can't write about it, but you can read it. Uh, the Senate, the Republican minority and CIA had rebuttals, but they didn't give it to the press ahead of time. So the day of the, the hour of the release comes, all this material is out there. The reporters have written 90% or more of their stories, and they don't read the rebuttals. The rebuttals are, tell a much more complicated story. Uh, unpleasant, all of this is unpleasant stories. But uh, so I had the luxury of time and reading all of this, and it's been uh, been interesting. So you are reading both the original yeah. story that was released and the rebuttals. Yes, and doing talking to some of the the people uh, in government and out of government about this and trying to to see uh, if the charges the report makes that the president wasn't informed and the congressional committees weren't informed and that the torture wasn't effective to see whether those stand up. And in fact, what you see here, you see a lot in the government, you see a lot in individual life that back to what I was saying about how we all psychologically cope with pressure. People don't want to make difficult value trade-offs. So no one wants to believe that uh, torture, and I think what we did was torture, uh, was yielded valuable information, but it was indeed torture. So the people who defend it, most clearly the poster child for outrageous positions, Vice President Cheney, says this isn't torture, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, and it was very valuable. And the people who oppose it tend to say not only is this torture, it's immoral, it's against American values, but it was unnecessary. It was ineffective. It got no information. No one wants to take the two other possible positions of war, which is, you know, uh, it didn't yield a lot, but it's nothing to be embarrassed by. Or the position I fear is true, that uh, it is torture, isn't enhanced interrogation. It's torture. It's illegal. It's immoral. It's against our values. And it probably saved American lives. People don't want to believe that, right? That's, you know, that's very uncomfortable. So some of my job is to try to make people uncomfortable. I think we end up making better decisions and in a sense, sounds pretentious, but live better lives when we're uncomfortable. Uh, leads us to see the world better and to make choices more clearly, even if it makes it uh, harder for us to sleep well at night. Mm. So that leads into the next question I was going to ask you is that when we were in the Cold War, it seemed that um, things were more black and white about yeah. what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. And now it's not like that. And yeah. I know that a lot of your work is uh, looking at the area of dilemmas in the field yeah. of conflict resolution. If you'd like to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, we have one basic dilemma that we had in the Cold War, which is assessing the adversary and what to uh, tell us. Um, what compromises are possible and whether threats will backfire or whether compromises and conciliation will backfire. Uh, 
But I think the post-Cold War does give us new dilemmas epitomized by the discussion of humanitarian intervention. Remember that uh, when civil war started in, in, uh, in Libya, there was pressure to, for the U.S. to intervene. We did. Uh, many people in the administration, the uh, stories are Susan Rice and Samantha Power now, even in higher positions, were leading this charge. I assume that's right. Uh, said that unless we intervened, there'd be 40,000 people killed in Benghazi. And so, partly because there was strong international support, including from almost unanimously in the Arab world, uh, we went ahead and, in effect, not only did a humanitarian intervention, which wouldn't have really solved the problem, we, we supported the group that overthrew Gaddafi. That looked fine, didn't it, at the time? <laughs> you know, things can turn out very differently. Or the problem we have in, in Syria. Uh, Assad is a butcher, and uh, the factions that are opposing him that we think are tolerant and embody, I don't want to say Western values, but Enlightenment values are small and ineffective. So uh, we... And uh, some of the main opposition, as we see, we think is more dangerous than Assad. You know, this is, is a real dilemma. There's just no, no real way to win in situations like this. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I know that um, you talk about uh, decision-making and how people make decisions. Yeah. And, of course, hindsight is brilliant. We can look yeah. back and say, wow, if only we yeah. had known. How do we get better at uh, figuring this out? Well, I think... I think we can do at least marginally better. And hindsight really is helpful, done right. Uh, there's a terrible danger in hindsight, as we know from uh, psychological experiments and we, I can see from reading histories, that when you know the answer, it looks obvious. You cherry pick. You say, mm -hmm. oh, well, any fool should have seen that. No, no, that's totally wrong. It isn't the failure to connect the dots. It's that the blackboard is filled with a million dots, many too many, and they can be connected in any number of plausible ways. Whenever the Senate report on torture makes this, it does exactly that. It uses hindsight. So the first thing to do is to be aware that using hindsight badly is terribly misleading. But we can do it well, both decision makers, but more academics if you look at these situations with an open-minded way, there are often lessons to be learned. You can see, I think, some reasons why we got Libby, if not wrong, why we didn't face certain questions. Uh, I have done sort of academic studies and I've done post-mortems for CIA and then in the main, main several cases been able to publish them because it's been declassified. And you can see ways in which people at the intelligence level and at the higher levels make mistakes that are correctable. And I like to think because of work like that, we do get a bit better. But uh, there are inherent limits given how messy the world is, how ambiguous information is, and the uh, the psychological pressures we feel and the dilemmas that life uh, confronts us with. Mm. 
And I know that uh, you've also paid attention to the role of empathy and what role does empathy play in decision-making? Yes. Uh, I think that empathy is difficult, important, and can be dangerous. I start with the latter class. I love doing this with my introductory class. I have them, uh, 100 or 200 of them, room, I have them play a game of cooperating or conflict. And the way I set up the payoffs, uh, they're all better if they all cooperate with each other. And they never can because of mistrust. And the reason they mistrust each other is they know that the other others may mistrust them. So their empathy actually makes it worse rather than better. And I like annoying them with that. You know. But usually, usually empathy is better. Uh, I think take, take the Iran case. Very few Americans, either citizens or people in Congress, understand that Iranian leaders and the populace have a very good reasons to distrust the U.S., to distrust the West, and to distrust Russia. They have been double-crossed and had dirty tricks played on them for over a century. Now, it isn't as though they have been without their own sins, but I think almost no Americans at that level fully uh, can understand why the Iranians would not trust us. I think the top negotiators know more and can do it. But even that, it, it's very hard, especially when the people on the other side of the table are very difficult and annoying. And everyone I know who's negotiated with Iran <laughs> says they are more difficult and annoying even than other people we negotiate with. In that situation, it's very easy to become self-righteous. We know that now we're not menacing Iran and to attribute all their resistance to malign intentions. So, uh, you know, empathy is, is very important, very hard to sustain, and of course, as in all things, occasionally they may be misplaced. Mm, very interesting, yeah. How do you manage those difficult negotiations? And you mentioned before some of the differences with academics and policymakers mm -hmm. in terms of time and focus and decision-making processes. I'm curious, you also have thoughts about the differences and maybe similarities between practitioners and scholars or academics. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the academic research, especially in economics and political science on bargaining, conflict, and conflict resolution, really do leave out the human element. I mean, I know that's a little trite, but it, it's hard to describe it any other way. Downplays empathy. It downplays the role of the interpersonal relations that develop. Now, I don't want to exaggerate. I don't think they determine everything. And there's a story in today's New York Times, and yet another story about Obama not schmoozing this time uh, with foreign leaders, not clear if it makes an enormous difference. But in some cases, it does matter. And certainly for the people who like sitting around the table in on the Iranian negotiations, who are spending weeks in the same small room, having some feeling for the opposite number, having some understanding so you don't dread, you know, stepping in the room and doing this. It makes it easier because a lot happens not on the table but in the coffee break. 
when someone says, yeah, I'm not speaking officially, but, you know, I wonder what about this. Well, you know, you're less likely to do that if you think you're going to get hit with a wet washcloth in your face. So some feeling that, gee, the other person is, you know, not bad, and you don't find spending time with him or her makes it easier in especially these informal things where often probes lead to uh, real openings. If you really hate the other person, the coffee break is pretty hard to do in a civil way. Oh, it must be. And as you're speaking about this, I'm thinking about the whole element of trust. And when you realize somebody else's humanity and have a personal yeah. relationship in some, to some degree, you're able to trust them a little bit more because you can read them. How does that work in the negotiation? Yeah, well, I think Bush and Gorbachev at the end of the Cold War, that um, at a certain point, Gorbachev felt that Bush was sincere, even when Bush was taking positions that Gorbachev felt with some uh, justification were totally unreasonable. But he felt at least that he was seeing the real Reagan. Uh, he didn't like it in some ways, but at least that was something real there. And I think that made it easier for him to do it do what he did, which was make an, uh, an enormous series of unreciprocated concessions. I think if he'd felt that Bush was consciously playing him for a fool, that would have been harder. The fact that he believed, partly I'd convince himself, that, that Bush was a sincere person who honestly wanted to, say, abolish nuclear weapons, made, made it easier for him to do what he felt he had to do. Mm -hmm. Interesting reflection. So I'm curious, um, we're in a world that's uh, very complex. There are a lot of dilemmas that need to be managed by academics, practitioners, policymakers. People have to make decisions quickly. So what words of advice you might have for how people can strengthen those skills? It, it, it's very hard, I think, partly practice that uh, it, I mean, I've, thank God, never had to uh, make the decisions or even be in the room with the people who made them. So I'm glad uh, to have uh, not to have had that. But I think a lot of people do get better. You get used to the pressures. Uh, you learn to manage your f time and keep your focus. I were talking to Big Brzezinski, who taught it. Columbia, but before and after uh, he served as Carter's security advisor. I asked him what the hardest thing about the job was, and he said, having to do, having to be prepared to do something different every four minutes. <laughs> and I think partly you develop those skills, and I think part of it, and where I would fault the Obama admin, Obama himself and his colleagues, is you have to build structures that support you, that bring in diverse people, that are not just circling the wagons, because you can't do it all yourself. And the people you know and have known for years may not be the best people. So you've got to uh, reach out to others. You've got to delegate to them, or else you won't be able to sort of, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. And that involves some empathy and trust within a government. And that's hard, but uh, the good administrations 
uh, do that better than the others. Yeah, so it really does take a team, even though yes. it's the leader that gets yeah. the praise and then the criticism. Yeah. Wow. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we close? No, I think uh, we covered a lot. We did cover a lot of territory. So I want to thank you very much, Professor Jervis, for joining us and for our listeners. Thank you. Right.